The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Now today, this is going to be a long reading, so I encourage you to just stay seated, just soak it in. I'll just remind you that um, scripture reading isn't something that we have to get through. It's not something preparatory for the ministry of the Word. It's part of the ministry of the Word. It's, these are the very words of the Holy Spirit. So let that sink in as we read. So we're going to be in um, Exodus chapter 15, the, at, uh, starting at verse 22. And then I'm going to read all the way through chapter 17. Hear what Holy Scripture says. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. 
And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall, take, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of, of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, 
Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Scott, for that reading. And uh, I hope you uh, like sandwiches. We're going to have some catered in since we're going to go through preaching for the all. No, just kidding. Uh, but let me say a quick prayer before I get started. Father God, we thank you for the rain. It was needed sorely in this land. I think of all the farmers that are depending on you to provide for them, and you did. Father, thank you for blessing this nation as we get ready to celebrate another Independence Day, another year of being independent. Lord, we thank you that you have kept us and provided for us all these years. You have blessed us greatly. Remind us, Father, that your word said, of whom many, much is given, much is expected. So, Father, I pray that this nation becomes a nation that doesn't just satisfy, isn't satisfied with itself, that every citizen, every sojourner in this land will be blessed and will not be satisfied with that, but they will seek to bless others through that, Father. Lord God, I lift up the Lord, the judge, and the Bratcher families. Uh, I pray that in this time of grief that you are comforting them, that you are providing people, your people around them, being the arms and ears and hugs of, of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you will comfort them with the knowledge knowing that their loved one is in the arms of Jesus today. And Father, I pray for the little kiddos downstairs. I pray that they are learning to trust in you as we are learning today to trust in you. All of this, Father God, I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're, as you know, we're going through Exodus, um, and we're going to look today at four vignettes, four separate events that might seem to be unrelated, but there is a thread 
through them. And I trust that you will pick up on that as we go through it. But let me do a quick recap of where we are, just to set the stage. Israel became a nation or became a mighty people, a multiple multitude of people in Egypt. But they were under bondage by Egypt. And they cried out from their slavery and cried out for help. And God heard their groaning and sent Moses to deliver them from Egypt. And after a series of dramatic demonstrations from God, Pharaoh let the Israelites leave. About 2 to 2.5 to 3 million probably of them hustling out of Egypt with their possessions, with their children, and with the goods that the Egyptians gave them to just say, take it and go. But Pharaoh changed his mind and chased after them at the last minute and caught up with them between the Red Sea and the army. There lied the Israelites, wondering, what are we going to do now? Just when all seemed lost, God parted the water in front of them, the Red Sea, led them across the dry seabed, and while the pursuing Egyptians chased after them, the Red Sea covered them and wiped out all the Egyptian army. And last week, we saw the overjoyed Israelites celebrating with singing, with music, with dancing, praising God in glorious triumph. So we pick up the story today, where now they're moving on from that crossing of the Red Sea to their next spot. Back in chapter 3, they were told Moses was going to take them to the land that was promised to their fathers before them. They were going to the promised land. So they set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of shore. They went three days. Now, they probably had water and food before, but on the third day, they realized we're out of water. They got to a, a body of water that they later would call Mara. They could not drink the water because it was bitter. And seeing this, the people grumbled against Moses. So to really get a picture, you have two and a half to three million people, this large body of water, it is bitter. Think those ponds by the highways. Think that there is no circulation going on them, and there is brackish uh, covering over the water. There may be carcasses nearby of animals who dared to drink some of the water. Two and a half, three million people watching this. Do you think you would grumble? If you have no water, you have your kids with you. So that's probably the scene at, at, at Mara. And Mara means bitter. So they, they decided to call that. And they grumbled and Moses said, it's not me you're really grumbling against. I'm not the one who brought you here. And in verse 25, we see that the Lord showed Moses a log, which might also be interpreted as a tree that was down. So it was huge. So he probably needed help. Showed it to him. And he, Moses, threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of your Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, 
I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. The ten plagues were still fresh in their mind. The Red Sea was still fresh in, in their mind. And now they had bitter water made sweet. Their grumbling couldn't change anything, didn't change anything. It didn't surprise God. It was God who decided that he needed to change the water. He already knew about the water and had a solution before the, Egypt, before the Israelites got there. And by testing them, he's training them to trust him. Did you get that? But I want us to be really careful here because this is one of those key passages for an erroneous gospel called the prosperity gospel. The words that, that Moses spoke on behalf of God are true. And if those are true, then the corollary, corollary is true. That meaning that if you don't obey these words, I won't cure you from your illnesses. That has been stretched out under the prosperity gospel to mean that if you are sinning, you are not being healed, and it's because of your sin. It's not true. In fact, Jesus addressed that in, in John chapter 9 when he encountered a blind man who was born blind. In that, chapter, in that verse, he said, as he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is a, an old man, in his, not old man, in his 30s, I believe. And Jesus answered, it is not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So don't be fooled by the prosperity gospel. Don't be fooled by just because you are under trial. That means your sin is what's holding you there. Jesus went on to heal that man, bring glory to himself, befuddle the Pharisees, and exposed another burdensome tradition. So let me return to the text. In verse 27, it might seem like that's a random out-of-place event where they're moving on from Mara, bitter water made sweet, and here they come to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the, by the water. Oh, isn't that sound refreshing? Why didn't God take them there in the first place? You ever thought of that? But sometimes you have to go through Mara to get to Elam. Does that make sense? Sometimes you have to go through some trials in order to get to that oasis. And don't miss the reason that you're going through the trials. God can just put you right in Elam. James told us, count it all joy when you're, when you're under trial. So that means, very likely means you're doing something right. Let's move on. 
what I'm doing is giving you a quick summary of each of these vignettes. And we'll look at the thread that ties them together. And we'll see what, that app what applications we can draw on it ourselves. In chapter 16, excuse me, that's a good long chapter. And I'm not going to do it justice. There's so much in that chapter that I've seen sermons actually split into three or four to cover just that whole chapter. It's a rich chapter. And so I trust that you will read it on your own and, and pick out the things that you can there. A month and a half after leaving Egypt, we see Israel arriving in the wilderness of sin. And in verse 2 of chapter 16, the whole congregation of people grumbled against Moses because they're now a month and a half into the wilderness. And they said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out here in this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Yeah, the same people who cried out for salvation from slavery are now saying, you know, that's not so bad. Why did you take us out of that? Why did you take us out of that? They're still not believing that their path to salvation is freedom in the promised land. And even after seeing God scourge Egypt with the ten plagues, even after seeing him part the sea, and even after seeing him make bitter water sweet, and even after seeing him taking them through Elam, they're grumbling. As we here in the U.S. get ready to celebrate another independence, that probably seems foreign that the people would rather go back into slavery than to head out on a path toward freedom. Right? It's just unfathomable. Let me put it in context. In our own context, so many of us would rather stay in the bondage of sin than follow Jesus Christ on the path towards salvation. See the linkage there? So before we condemn the Israelites for grumbling, let's think, would you grumble a month and a half with no food and you've just been eking out the, your existence and there's two and a half to three million of you, would you grumble or would you rather wallow back in your sin? So here they're grumbling, grumbling again and God will put them to another test. This one designed to foster daily dependence on them, to trust him to provide. Verses 4 and 5 in chapter 16 says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepared what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So he's going to prepare them to, to depend on him daily, and he's going to prepare them for a Sabbath rest. And that's exactly what happened. For the, each of the first of the five days, God made manna available that would spoil after one day. And on the sixth day, they were able to gather two portions that would last two days. 
So on the seventh day, what was left over did not spoil. But they were told to rest. There were some who went out looking on the seventh day, and they were used as an example to say, no, you have to listen to God. He said, you had enough yesterday to cover today. Stay in your place and put your trust in God. So God enabled weekly rest or Sabbath. It's the first instance that we're hearing about it, and you are going to hear as we go through the rest of Exodus some more about that, which would soon be, that's going to become enshrined in the law of God. And each time the amount they gathered would be exactly what's needed for the family. So not only would it spoil at the end of the day, it was exactly what they needed. And on the sixth day, it was ex twice exactly what they needed. Now, in verse 35, we see that the people ate manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land. In other words, Jehovah Jireh, the, who is the Lord being our provider, provided the exact amount of bread to Israel on a daily basis for 40 years. Truth be known, I'm not really excited about that part. Um, and the Israelites aren't either. My wife doesn't understand how I can eat peanut butter and bread peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day for lunch, but I wouldn't eat manna every day for 40 years. True to form, actually, the Israelites grumbled. In fact, they grumbled so much, there was one point that God gave them an overabundance of quail. But they really didn't, weren't eating. That wasn't just a pure, steady diet of quail. Because remember, on the first day, on the, on the, day, the evening before the manna started, quail came over the land, and they had meat on that day. So there were times, from time to time, as, we will, as, we, as you look through the Pentateuch, there's time to time that you will see that they had meat to eat. There were other people in the land, and they would occasionally pass on oases or, you know, so there was food. They had livestock, and they were able to trade with uh, other people in the land. So it wasn't just manna, but the manna was secured every day except on Sabbath for 40 years. The bottom line, Jehovah Jireh, our provider, provided for three million people moving through the wilderness, not a one went hungry after that. That's the definition of a trustworthy God. And that trustworthy God is the same then, the same today. But beyond bread and rest, God sustained them through his very word, as Moses explained 40 years later when he was releasing Israel to cross the Jordan without him. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, he said, Remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manner, with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Does that sound familiar? In John chapter 6, Jesus confirmed that he is the manifestation of that word. He said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I, Jesus, am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He was speaking about his sacrifice. He is going to be the bread that satisfies the whole world once and for all. So the Israelites were learning that. They were learning to trust in God. They were learning that he is the provider. God's trustworthiness in sustaining his people continues even to today not just in bread, but in his word. The one who was crucified, died, buried, was raised again and ascended and is living. He has proven that he is the bread of life. Moving on to chapter 17, Israel comes in from the wilderness of sin in stages towards Rephidim. Now, Numbers 33 records that they camped in two locations prior to Rephidim. So that might explain why the word stages was used here. So you can see three million people probably moving at a time. They moved to this area. And nothing necessarily happened in those two locations. But here in the third location in Rephidim, some things happened. Guess what? Their people realized they had no water. So all of what we just went through, all of what they just saw, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to grumble again. And they did. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us with our children and our livestock with thirst? If this sounds familiar... You are paying attention because it's the third time they're grumbling against Moses and it's their second time invoking Egypt that they want to go back into slavery. This time, though, Moses saw through their facade. They may be quarreling with Moses, but they're actually testing the Lord. After all of what they saw, they're still not trusting him. And the Lord testing the people is a completely different thing than the people testing the Lord. In so many places we see in this, throughout Scripture, we see that it's not a good thing to test the Lord. I think in Malachi, there is an image where God says, you think your arms are long enough to box with me? But here, here it is. Not, not only are they showing a lack of trust, they're proving a point that what you see, the experiences you go through, it's not a solid way. If that's all that your faith is based on, it's tenuous at best. Remember what all of what they just went through. But let's look back at verse at, at uh, chapter 14. 
the last verse in chapter 14, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So they saw and they believed then, but all of that just went out the door. The things we see, the things we hear, cannot be the basis of our trust. There has to be more than that, and we're going to touch on that in a little bit. Reminds me of a story about an acrobat named Charles Blondin who would frequently cross the, t uh, the, the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. One particular day, he crossed several times, and one time he came back uh, with a wheelbarrow. He asked the people, do you think I can do it again? He said, yeah, yeah. Okay, get in the wheelbarrow. No takers. What you see needs to be overcome by more than that. And God is not looking for, well, no. He is requiring a deeper trust in him. He, he wants his people metaphorically in that wheelbarrow. He wants you to trust in him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And him being the merciful provider, in this instance, instructed Moses to take some witnesses and to go to the rock at Horeb. God purposely said he will be standing on the rock for the witnesses to see. And Moses was to go up and strike the rock with his staff. So in my imagination, I can see Moses walking up to this massive rock face. On top of the rock face is a cloud, a column of cloud, of, of smoke that forms a cloud. He takes the, the rod, the staff that he got from God. He strikes that rock face and a waterfall comes out and into the basin below. Sounds like Elam. The witnesses that he brought with him so surprised. They ran up, they had their full of water, and they ran back to their clans to tell about it because they saw God was with them, water coming out of the rock. There are many commentators who would show the parallel that this rock was a parallel to Jesus. That there was God presiding over the death of his son. And out of the death of his son came the living water. Jesus pretty much held on to that parallel too, I think. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, he said to a Samarian woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again drink of the well water. They'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So you, you're seeing the thread through all of what we've, all these examples that God is taking through, um, Israel through. He's calling them to trust him more. But he's not just calling them. He's talking through the ages to us to trust him more. And the Israelites, it doesn't really say here, but I think in this next stage, this next vignette, 
their trust again was being put to the test. The Amalekites showed up out of the blue. Well, maybe not out of the blue, because they were in the land. They were known to be a warlike people, descendants of Esau, so they're somewhat related to the Israelites. And they had moved into the area. And so now they're seeing that they're in this area. And they're seeing a new uh, nation, a new set of people coming in. They heard about these people. They came out of bondage in Egypt. They defeated the Egypt, Egyptian army. And they do strange things like gather bread every morning except on one day. They don't do anything on that one day. There's an incessant fire following them, lighting up the sky by day, by night, and forming a smoky cloud by day. They figured our safety is at, is at risk here, so they were going to uh, carry out a surprise uh, raid, a surprise um, attack. Moses got wind of that and called on his general, uh, J Joshua. <laughs> I'm, I like Joshua. He seems to me like a, a go-getter, no-holds-barred kind of a guy, um, probably quiet. I mean, he just says he, he is in the wheelbarrow. Right? He is all in, and you'll see that as we go on. Moses called him and said, hey, get some guys together. We're, you're going to go out and fight tomorrow. Tomorrow? <laughs> We're going to fight an army tomorrow? He, Joshua didn't even question it. He just went about gathering up his army. He followed Moses, what Moses said. He did as Moses told him, and he went out. Moses told him, I will be standing on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So that's exactly what happened. And as Joshua and Israel engaged in battle, Moses is holding up the staff. And while he was holding up the staff, Israel was winning. But he's 80 plus years old and he grew tired. And as he pulled his hands down, Israel started to lose. So with him are Aaron and Hur, they held up his hands, and Israel prevailed through the end of the day when the sun went down. Israel defeated Amalek. Celebration again, right? Now, there are two fields of thought behind what was happening when he held up his hand. One thought is that he was praying, but there, nowhere in the text does it say he was praying. But that's a good thought, though, because that's something that we should do. First and foremost, whenever we are faced with a situation, what's the first thing? We approach our God, our provider, our protector, and seek him out in prayer. But I'm kind of more in the other camp of thought that says he was holding up this staff of God that's representing the banner of God, the banner himself, and it's touched on a little bit later on. And, it's, and through that, God is miraculously defeating the Amalekites to show that he is the standard, he is the source of victory. That would convey to Israel and to anyone else that it's the Lord God Almighty in whom you should put your trust. 
By the way, there's something to also to be said about um, contribution, contributing to the welfare of the whole. Aaron and her, this is the only time we really heard about her in action. But his contribution was not minor. He was holding up Israel to be, want, to be, to be winning, right? Every role is significant, which, by the way, reminds me, we still need someone for the snack maven, right? So see how I snuck that in there? Okay. This battle and every subsequent battle was clearly dependent on the involvement of the Lord, and he wanted Moses to make that known to Israel. And further, he wanted Joshua to hear a particular message. So God directed Moses to write down and to specifically whisper in Joshua's ear, to recite in Joshua's ear that God intends for the Amalekites to be blotted out from under heaven. Spoiler alert, Joshua will soon see Israel and Amalek battling again together a year later, and Amalek will prove to be one of the, uh, uh, to be a player in Israel staying in the desert for 40, for 40 years. Now, Moses decided, as, he, as you have seen, he will, in whenever a significant event, they come up with a name. Uh, to this time, he put an altar, he built an altar, and he called it, The Lord is My Banner. Again, referring to the banner that is held high. He's not saying that, Moses is the banner. He's not saying that this staff is the banner. It is the Lord who is the banner this, that is flown high over Israel. And it is to him that all victories belong. Today we will see Christ as the equivalent of that, right? Christ is our banner. It is Christ that we hold high. It is Christ who is the victor over every battle that faces us. It is his death, his sacrifice that has enabled us to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And it is through that Holy Spirit that we are secured as the bride of Christ when he returns. So four separate events used to build Israelites' trust in him. Of course, they didn't know it at the time, but had they learned to fully trust God, the trajectory would be different. We're going to learn about that when, uh, when Moses sends spies into the land. But even in the stories that we just covered, had they chosen uh, to, to fully trust in Christ, some of the things they went through would not have had to happen. And the takeaway for us is the same, too. When we fully put our trust in Christ, the trajectory is going to be different than if we don't. As we make it through life in our version of this wilderness, our trajectory should be to place our trust in Christ. Here are a few examples of what it might look like when we place our trust fully in Christ. In mourning, if we mourn the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, 
And if we wait for the Lord to act, we see in the Beatitudes, those who mourn will be comforted. If we refuse to make a scene at the risk of being lost in the fray, you might get your Starbucks cup 10, 20 minutes later. But in the Beatitudes, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. We give up a business opportunity that profits from immoral behavior. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We take a family member, take in a family member who previously slandered us in public, who just had no good intention for us, but is now in a position that we can help him. And if we do that and we show mercy, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. Those are things that we can do when we put our trust in God and fully, and we're not waiting for our own intervention. I wanted to wrap that up with saying there's an interaction between Jesus and one of his 12, one of his 12 disciples, and you know him as Thomas, become to known as Doubting Thomas because of just that one interaction where he said, I'm not going to believe that Christ came into you. I'm not going to believe until I see it, until I touch him. And sure enough, eight days later, he was in a closed room. Christ stands in front of him and says, feel these wounds in my hands, feel my side. And he believed. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So if Jesus went after Thomas to increase his faith and to show him how much more is he going to come after you to increase your faith but, and you have not seen him? Blessed are you who believe in him. Your faith is not built on the things that you have seen. Your faith is not built on the experience of someone logically explaining to you why you should trust in Christ. Your faith is based on the heart. And because of what Christ went through in the wilderness, in his wilderness at the start of his ministry, 40 days for each, one day for each of the years that, were, that Israel spent in the desert, he went through sin. He went through the temptation to sin. He experienced what we needed to, what we need in order to be trusting of God. I can get it out, <laughs> right? He was our example, and he did that all on our behalf and imputed it to us. To take hold of that, that your faith can be increased. Christ will be pursuing you to increase that faith, but it is him who provided that faith to you. So take joy in that, Source Church.